hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Show. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> All right. Hello, and welcome to episode 353 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host. Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year young adult cancer survivor, broadcasting right now from the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny King, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. In this episode... Cancer in college. We're going to talk with Boston-based educational consultant Michelle Rosenthal, who is the assistant dean of undergraduate programs at the Sawyer Business School at Suffolk University, about navigating cancer and the college experience and the art of finding appropriate on-campus resources. And a survivor spotlight on our very own young adult survivor, Mallory Casperson, the founder and CEO at a fabulous resource called Lacuna Law. we we'll learning more about that. And with that, it is our show, Kenny Kane. Hello. Mallory Rivera. Hello. Hello, Noel Wimmer. Hello. You keep showing up. I do. We must have hired you. <laughs> Seems like that. Noel said he's going to play soccer uh, after the uh, the show here. We tape it. And um, I had asked him, you spend so much time in Europe. I'm surprised they even let you still say the word soccer, even though you're over here now. I know. I get a lot of looks. Do they track you? I get a lot of dirty, dirty <laughs> emails and looks, yeah. Yeah, because if you're an American, you stay here at soccer. But once you go to Europe, you can never say soccer again. Nope. It's a, it's like the S word. For both. Yeah. <laughs> he said it in German, too. Even better. <laughs> even better. Hello, Kenny. How are you? I'm well. How are you? You are bracing for a fairly large trip soon, aren't you? I am heading out on the road yet again. It seems to be a recurring theme in my life. Uh, for seven stops of the Warp Tour, uh, as far north as Boston as far west as Scranton, and as far south as Maryland. You like to just go on the road, don't you? I do. I miss my calling as a truck driver. What are you renting this year? Uh, a Suburban, like last year. Well, it's not the most eco-friendly 
It is certainly effective. Yes. Well, good for you. And, uh, and you'll be joined by... What? I was going to say, I'm currently battling something. <coughs> I think we're all battling something. The pollen here in New York City is just horrible. Um, but uh, you're bringing some folks with you on the road. You're meeting up with some of our friends along the way. Yeah, our friends from uh, Spencer Gifts. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Okay. You are a hot mess tonight. Yep. <laughs> Hello, Mallory. Hello. I saw you this weekend. Yes. It was a, a sad but happy occasion yeah, all rolled into one. Our uh, former um, program person, ops person, Maureen Sweet, uh, employee number four here, um, had gone off to, uh, uh, she went ahead and like lived her life and went to grad school. So today, uh, this weekend was her send-off party. Maureen Sweet, we wish you all the best and Godspeed in your new endeavor on her way to getting CPA yes. certification at UT Austin. Yes. Well, she's in good hands. We have lots of friends out there. She will be quite pleased with her uh, availability of food down there. It's, uh, yeah, once she discovers the, well, she's seen 6th Street many times, but it's it's nothing like living there. Well, you start off seeing it. Right, exactly. And, uh, yeah, we already got to know. Noel's playing soccer. That's all that matters, right? Yeah. <laughs> Man, a few words. It's going to be a late night. Exactly. Well, I had a decent um, uh, weekend. My kids and I, we went to the, the zoo with my, my cousin and all that, but I, I had the chance to go to um, to Toronto last week after the show to visit our friends at Click Health. They're a large ad agency. And for those of you who listen to the show, I was at a conference. We were all at a conference special event a week ago uh, today uh, in Philadelphia with Bill Clinton was the keynote speaker. And I led a panel of experts on health disparities and patient empowerment and whatnot. But the company that put on the conference is called Click, one of the Toronto. They are really excited to start looking at partnering with us. And um, for those of you who went, Kenny, Sean, uh, Mallory, it was a pretty intense event. Uh, Click had expressed an interest in learning more about how they could, I'll just say, clicketize uh, our events and whatnot. So think thicker cardboard <laughs> and uh, what were the leather strap types of things. Yes, leather strap lanyards. Yes. I, I wasn't there, so I can't comment. <clears throat> That's it, right. it was very high class. Very high class. Yes. No, it's a great opportunity to really, you know, sort of figure out how they can plug into to what we're doing. Hello, Sean. Hello. Sorry, I was uh, meeting with the survivor down in uh, Lower East Side. I'm going to scold you for doing your job. <laughs> it was a very good conversation. Yeah. I'm this, Who this, was it? Can you say in the air? Uh, I let's. I wouldn't, right. it, okay. But <laughs> this guy is really great. He's uh, he basically was faced with with brain cancer and the treatment wasn't working and. Basically, it was kind of like your story, Matt. I, I'd definitely love for you to meet him. Um, but basically, just said no to the treatment because it would have really dramatically affected his quality of life. Wow. And he's fighting it. He's doing bike races 100 miles. Uh, oh. when that oh, was, was that all? Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. So uh, very impressive guy. Really, really great guy. So excited to get him involved. Very cool. So um, I am going to be, I just got invited actually to speak at uh, something called the Association of Oncology Nurse Navigators. Now, nurse navigation is not something unfamiliar to stupid cancer. We've done many shows on nurse navigation and have had a former board members who are specializing in that field. But they have an annual conference this year in Atlanta, and I'll be going down there to speak to, I think, 300 attendees. And the nurse navigators out there are the ones that are trying to patch the holes and fill the gaps between when you're diagnosed and then what do you do and who do you talk to and how do you go through the process of 
paying and talking to your insurance companies and what resources you need to know and how do you have honest conversations about parenting and what basically the real honest navigation. It's it's hard enough to go through it um, when you are savvy than uh, in the Charlie Brown teacher cloud of ridiculousness that we call the oh shit window. But uh, I'll be speaking there and then I will be um, exhibiting. I think Kenny, you're coming up with this one, Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, APON, the Association of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology Nurses, back in the day, used to exhibit there all the time, uh, 06, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then they kind of already knew us already, but now they want us to come back to talk about Instapeer, which is good. And then, Mallory, what's happening tomorrow night? Something at Sloan Kettering? Yes, there is a, uh expert and patient panel at Sloan Kettering with LLS. It is uh, surviving cancer under 40. Right. So yeah. we're going. Yes. Hopefully, a nice turnout. Yes, it, it looks like they have a. They've put together a, a very interesting panel with two doctors and uh, three patients at Sloan with LLS. So it's going to be interesting. Good, good stuff. What else is here? Oh yeah, and, and just quickly in the news here, we had posted a couple of things on the wall, and um, what were there? Oh, the, oh yeah, this guy. He. <laughs> If you missed it, just check out Facebook.com slash Stupid Cancer. Some guy left his iPhone on record during a colonoscopy procedure, and it recorded the audio of all the people in the room uh, of what they were talking about. And and oftentimes they were making fun of him and talking about lying about telling him good news when it was bad news. It was really, really... Where did he hide it? They basically... It was an accident. Yeah. He was recorded. What happened is he was recording uh, the instructions to make sure he didn't forget anything in his uh, dazed stupor after the fact and accidentally stopped, for, forgot to stop the recording. So I'm surprised they even let you in the room with that, though. Yeah. Probably just I mean, put I it would on say, the... I was going to say, where did he hide it? But ne- it was a colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> now they won't let you hide it after, yeah. I think it was a 50. $50,000 lawsuit. Yeah, and the doctor lost his license. Yeah. So it just goes to show you we should all be secretly taping our uh, our anesthesia procedures. It's like that episode of Seinfeld when um, Jerry's father, who spoke Korean, went to the nail salon and he knew what they were talking about and they made fun of him. Sort of sure. just like that. That was, a great that was a 90s reference that no one understands. Okay. In any case... Uh, we also want to make everyone aware that's listening um, to the show uh, now, uh, that, that being like today, Monday, <coughs> that our mobile app, Instapeer, will have a planned outage, we believe, this week. Check social. Check your inbox. Uh, we'll be making announcements. This is a necessary uh, thing we have to do because the Amazon servers aren't cooperating. Although we did break uh, a few thousand users. Very exciting stuff. And people are loving the app. If you haven't already, um, please visit instapeer.org or search for Instapeer in your app store and take a look. Um, see uh, see, I like it. Find somebody just like you or be there for someone to meet you and know they're not alone. Um, and with that, let's, uh, let's start our show. In our Survivor Spotlight tonight, Mallory Casperson, 28-year-old cancer survivor Hodgkin's lymphoma, also served as a primary caregiver for her mother undergoing treatment for a brain tumor. Married with two doggy daughters, about to move to San Francisco, founder and CEO of Lacuna Law. Please welcome to the for the first time to the Stupid Cancer Show, Mallory Casperson. Hello, Mallory. Hi. 
You are just the bubbliest person. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Oh, I'm really excited, too. So thank you for having me. We uh, have had a torrid Twitter love affair for quite a while now. That's true. Yes. <laughs> we are out at Kansas City. We can't find Twitter at Lacuna Law. No, and I was like, I was like, who is this person that's constantly reaching out and retweeting? And like, your strategy is great. And I, I'm always asked, what's my strategy? And I have no strategy. So you are doing something right. Oh well, good. Okay, now I can tell people that that's my strategy because I never really thought about it that way before. Yeah, we always get asked, how do you get so many people to do things on Facebook? And like, I, it, the, the best plan is not to have one, I suppose. And there, yeah. there it goes. That's right. If you do cool things, people will just eventually come. I suppose whatever's working, working. We're going to stick to it. That's our story. Um, but your story, your story is amazing. Um, you know, Hodgkin's lymphoma, not an unfamiliar cancer to young adults, but certainly one that is right. very different in terms of how you get diagnosed and how you get through the system. We were just discussing at the top of the show, nurse navigators and their role, and if they exist at the cancer center you treated at, but I'd like with all of our spotlights, I'd love you to just, you know, start from the beginning. What were you up to when, at 27, just being normal? Yeah, well, um, not really. I guess if we start from kind of the beginning. Um, the last year of my undergrad, my mother was diagnosed with brain tumor, and so that was kind of my beginning um, to the world of cancer. Uh, and then um, about a month after her passing, I... Uh, I went back in to a ear, nose, and throat person to have them feel my really lumpy neck for a millionth time, and they decided that they needed to take one of the lymph nodes out and biopsy it. And so on February 14th, I had surgery, and I only remember that day because I wished a happy Valentine's Day to everyone, apparently, while I was um, slightly still gragging from anesthesia. <laughs> so, um, And then two days later, I had my diagnosis of Hodgkin. So I was in grad school, and just kind of trying to find my footing after having played caregiver for a number of months. So it's kind of a bit of a hazy period in my life, actually. I actually emailed the show saying that I was 27, and I'm in fact 28 because there's like a, a year of my life gone. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah, I get it. So first of all, condolences on the loss of your mother. But oh, thank you. It's, that's got to be a really tricky way to sort of find yourself in that position following that and going from caregiver to someone that needs to be cared for. Can you talk about that? Yes, it's definitely, um, it's definitely a tricky transition to experience. I mean, it's hard going from a young adult to being a young adult caregiver and it's hard going from being a young adult to being a young adult cancer survivor. Um, but adding the two of them together, I did find as uh, a very challenging part of my life. But it also just added a bit of kind of a fierce independence to the whole equation because um, my husband and I were engaged at the time, and he had moved down to St. Louis where I grew up um, to kind of help with the caregiving um, time period. And so as soon as this cancer diagnosis of mine rolled around, we were just ready to hit it full force with as much of our own energy as possible, just kind of regain our own footing. Um, so that's how we did it. But we but we were both grad students at the time, so we were surrounded by lots of young adults who we were also in kind of a tumultuous, you know, grad student, am I a real adult or am I not kind of time, so that was helpful as well. But, yeah, being a young adult and dealing with cancer in general is just kind of crappy. So. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So your treatments, how, how long – 
did it take you to get uh, diagnosed from the, your first symptoms until, you know, here you are with this, uh, this blood cancer? Well, so from, di- from biopsy to diagnosis, I only had two days. Wow. Which was, uh, yeah, very incredible. They asked if I could, they, they called me saying that the physician had a very busy afternoon, but that he wanted to see me before then. Could I be there in 10 minutes? I mean, I live in a small area, but 10 minutes was a little bit crazy. So, I, you know, I had to take 20 or so. But, yeah, so two two days. Um, but in terms of when I found kind of a lumpy, a series of lumps in my neck that seemed larger than normal, and the time I actually had them biopsied was probably six or eight months just because if you're a healthy young adult anyway, I mean, I was diagnosed with ear, nose, and, or ear, nose, and throat. That was the physician with um, sinus infections and a deviated something and kind of a series and went through just a series of antibiotics to kill some sinus infection that I may or may not have had. So um, finally, though, someone at my actually student health clinic decided that that someone needed to to pay more attention to this. And so using all the resources that they had, which kind of maxed out in an x-ray machine, um, she took as much information as possible and sent me to another hospital. And um, they told me to come back in six weeks, and which I didn't do, obviously. But I did come back, and uh, and then it went pretty fast from there. I'd say the worst part was the month between diagnosis and staging because we, you know, got a second opinion and had our staging. Um, I had my staging done in St. Louis where I grew up just because we had a sport community there and the hospital was much larger there. And that month felt like a lifetime of lots of questions and uncertainties and horrible possibilities kind of all in one go. And then once we had a plan, you know, it felt a lot more controllable, I guess, if you can call cancer controllable. So, yeah, I, I affectionately am on the record calling it the oh shit window. And yeah. it, it can be, you know, anywhere from a week to three months to six months. And, and it's never good for anyone. And that is when life becomes all Charlie Brown teacher with wah, 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 and nothing makes any sense. Yes. Yeah. And you kind of go through these, like, the stages of grief, kind of, and like how freaked out you are by it. And like that. You know, each stage can last like 10 minutes and be cycled through a couple times a day or, but then, you know, yeah. Yeah, not a fun time. Open no. window, that's good. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I have a, um, apparently I have a column now with U.S. News and World Report called Robitussin for Brain Cancer, which is, you know, my story. So I was given Robitussin yes. for, for Brain Cancer. I've and, seen that. Right. I, I think that's awesome that you're sharing that story because it's just such a, like, it's such an awesome tagline and yet it was horribly true. They actually had to get, and we knew this, they had to actually get commercial clearance from Macmillan or whatever company makes Robitussin to use the name in, in the in the article, and they said yes. But oh, what I man. found most interesting is in in part two uh, that, I, that just came out last week, uh, I talk about the oh shit window, and U.S. News actually printed the word shit, and they published a image of that quote with the word shit on Twitter and Facebook. So yes, that's I'm like, awesome. So, I tend to curse quite a bit, so that makes me happy. Yes. So the OSW in layperson terms is is what you went through in St. Louis. And so you mentioned you had some support. Was that friends and family? Yes, primarily friends and family. My mother was an oncology nurse, and so 
um, a lot of her friends who had kind of stepped out of the woodwork to help us out um, with her continued to be active in, in my life and through my diagnosis, which was helpful. Um, yeah, the one thing about living in a college town, though, is that people come and go, and so there was kind of a turnover of people at around right. that time, too. But, I mean, in general, what I learned through much difficult trial and tribulation was that usually if you ask for help, you do find people who who are coming willing to offer that help. And it's not always the person who you expect, um, but if you – if you know, I learned to ask for what I needed, um, and that was definitely helpful, especially in the oh shit window period of time. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, we, we, the running joke, of course, is, come on, it's not rocket science, but you are an ex-rocket scientist, and I, 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 you have to tell us what that's all about. Yeah, so uh, I did my undergrad and a, and a master's, um, in the middle of which my own diagnosis happened, uh, and then started a Ph.D., in um, aerospace engineering, which is kind of the you know the new term for for rocket science right. stuff, but <laughs> also you know has some other things in it. So yeah, and then I you know sometimes when cancer comes along, you just need a little bit more of a compassionate working environment. And when your working environment appears a lot like the people and the characters out of the Big Bang Theory. It's hard to go through a big life crisis and have everybody kind of on board to be uh, flexible and you know willing to kind of ride that wave with you. So, so I eventually left my PhD program and have just kind of created a new, a brand new life for myself. Mallory 2.0. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. For a little while, I felt very much like I had gone from Mallory 1.0 to like Mallory 0.5. Right. Um, but I, but I think Mallory 2.0 is a good way of putting it now. So where, uh, you know, you're not that far, you know, into this, right? It's been uh, a few years. I mean, lacuna. That's correct. Right. Yeah. So how I are you? I finished my treatments and then really tried to stick through. I mean, it's hard to kind of rework one's identity. And I, I mean, I was four years into grad school. So that's a lot of time spent thinking that I would be an engineer. So the need to kind of leave that took a little while. Right. So as part of your 2.0, I mean, you found Stupid Cancer, you connected with the Young Adult Cancer Universe, you've really become an amazing, almost an ambassador by proxy of everything we represent and what we do. And if you didn't know that, I just told you that, so there you go, there's fact, because oh, I said that. Thanks. But, <laughs> but I'm intrigued by this, uh, sort of the, the one of the byproducts of, I'll just say Mallory 2.0, is something called Lacuna Loft. And that's a very interesting uh, phrase. Where did that come from? Yeah, um, the word lacuna means a break or a pause or a hiatus, um, and then loft sounded like a cool place to come and hang out, and uh, that's really what I needed during my own cancer diagnosis, and it was really painful learning how to create that for myself when I had been used to being a very busy, active graduate student. I ran marathons, and um, I have two dogs. And so kind of learning what it is to create a new life and just deal with something as debilitating emotionally and physically as a cancer diagnosis and treatment and then figuring out how to be in survivorship, Lacuna Loft has kind of emanated from all of that when I discovered that I, that I needed to create a new path for myself. Um, and it also just demonstrates a lot of what I was missing during my own um, 
fight, I guess. And I mean, even now, just a place where, you know, the, the lifestyle maintenance aspect, um, kind of is blended with personal stories of survivorship and things like that. I, I had never known someone else my age who had cancer. And even though I was treated at a fairly large institution, I only met one other person who wasn't really interested in kind of connecting with me and my husband on that level. And, um, so it took me kind of creating lacuna often and coming to cancer con and discovering stupid cancer and all that to really meet other people my age and realize that, you know, this horrible transition that I went through was something that other people have gone through because at the time it felt so life-shattering and isolating um, that creating Lacuna Loft and creating that space and just meeting other young adult cancer survivors has been a huge part of the last year and a half, two years of my life and has been transformative. So CancerCon was your first event with other young adults? Yes. So that's... <laughs> That's kind of jumping in the deep end of the pool right there. Oh, my gosh. I uh, I described it to someone as I arrived feeling kind of vulnerable and like I could go and cry in a corner. And I left feeling that way, too, but um, much different tears. So just on the way there, it was just kind of scary. Should I really do that? You know, maybe I feel sick today. I should just, I should just stay home. And on leaving, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go back home to where I don't know anybody anymore and I've met all these awesome people and, you know, fear and excitement um, and joy at the end. It was awesome. <laughs> well, look at you. <laughs> I have a, so we got about five minutes left. I want to talk to you about two specific things. Um, if okay. you're, if you're open, uh, your husband, um, did he, as a caregiver to you, were you willing to have a caregiver? A lot of patients wanted kind of, do it on their own, especially I would imagine coming from the perspective you had as being an unwitting caregiver to your mother. Was there a dynamic there or is, is he the superhero rock star? I, I probably imagine he is. Um, yeah, I think we, uh, I think we balance one another well in real life, which, which helps real life, I guess doesn't involve cancer. I don't know how that came out of my mouth just now. Um, but yeah, that's a very good question. I think that, okay, so from the, like, going through chemo, you need a clean house perspective, he was obsessed about <laughs> keeping a clean house. No sick people were allowed over. My brother showed up with, you know, just sinus full of allergy issues, and I thought my husband was going to kick him out the front door. Um, so in that respect, he became very protective. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, um, young adults are busy, and so young adult spouses who are playing caregivers are also very busy, and they're not experiencing the same kind of uh, physical side effects often that the patient is, and they're also not the one receiving maybe as many, you know, extra days off or extra allowances at work, and so that was a balance to play, too, because he was still very busy, and here I was needing to take time off of work and feeling very lonely, Um so it's not a period of time that I would really like to repeat in my life, but uh, but I think that he did a pretty good job. <laughs> well, at, at CancerCon, I'm sure you saw that we do a lot of workshops for caregivers, and that isn't necessarily like your mom or your dad, although we have a lot of sort of we call like the boomers of stupid cancer, but mostly for the young adult husband, you know, partner, spouse, sibling, you know, best friend, even child, you know, that uh, what does that mean? when you have to, you know, 
I was going to mention children, but I, the other thing I want to talk about is the uh, you were on actually a clinical trial for uh, yeah. reproductive health, correct? Um, yeah, I did a clinical trial for my treatment for Hodgkin's, and then I'm in a reproductive uh, window study right now. So what does that mean? Which one? Both? Well, what does reproductive window study mean? Is that like another oh shit window? Kind of. Yeah, because um, right now, and so I, I had Hodgkin's lymphoma, and if you really want to know how your chemo treatment affected uh, your female reproductive system, and Hodgkin's is not the best diagnosis to have had, um, just in terms of the amount of information available, because far more studies have actually been done on breast cancer patients. Um, so what they're doing right now through, I believe, the University of California um, at San Diego, they're actually trying to determine not just are you fertile or infertile, because someone can tell me right now whether I, as 28 years old, almost four years out of treatment, are fertile or infertile, but just figuring out, you know, so normally I could probably have children safely until I was like 40. I don't know. It's 2015. That sounds reasonable to me. Um, but maybe I have five years less than that because of my chemo treatments. Um, but I don't know. And no one seems to be able to tell me that right now. So they're actually trying to figure out based on saliva samples and um, blood samples, whatever information they glean from that. I'm not exactly sure, but they're trying to figure out, you know, how, regardless of diagnosis, um, this affects your kind of reproductive uh, time span. Well, it speaks to me in general as massive progress. We worked with, um, I think it was, was it USA Today or something? Last year, only 14% of oncology professionals had a reproductive health conversation with their patients who were in their fertile years. And despite. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's horrible. It is horrible. So, but I mean, this is in spite of there being standards of care, best practices, and guidelines that residents, interns, right. fellows, and senior medical professionals and specialists should be adhering to. So, yep. 14% isn't good at all but the fact that you were not only made aware of it but introduced to a trial for it is stunningly progressive i discovered that at CancerCon. right it's yep. it's the it, it is the i would say it's the social issue of our generations i would say, almost say a a civil liberty of entitlement that cancer, oh, yeah. yes that that is the one i thing. would agree i would think that fertility is a big thing. I got to have a fertility conversation initially um, and was able to kind of research that and make a decision that my husband and I um, felt was good. Um, but also even other things too, like psychosocial support. I received no kind of emotional backing from my oncology team. There wasn't, you know, a social worker on the crew or anything like that. So, you know, Lacuna Loft is the thing that's kind of filled that void in my life, like the need for psychosocial support and kind of emotional care and, you know, learning what self-care is. And between that and whether or not you're going to have children later on, I think those are huge pieces of the healthy survivorship puzzle that are a big part of being a young adult cancer, you know, patient or caregiver or clinician or anything because, you know, I'm 28 years old now. I have a whole lot of stuff 
still to experience and live, and right. I would like to go through that with as much information as possible. Agree. So with, with a minute left, can you just briefly tell us, and I, I want to have you back. You, this is such a fun interview, and, and I know you're moving to, to California, but if you're ever in New York, you got a, a home base here anytime you want. Oh, awesome. Thanks. <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> so tell us what Lacuna Loft does, what is its mission, and how are you helping the young adult cancer movement? Okay, so Lacuna Loft is a not-for-profit online magazine. So we're all online, which makes me being in the middle of the cornfield um, irrelevant. You can be anywhere and experience lacunaloft.com. And we're an online magazine that deals with everything psychosocial support and emotional well-being for young adults dealing with cancer as patients, survivors, or caregivers. So we have daily articles that focus on everything from kind of do-it-yourself activities for when you're not feeling well and, you know, you're used to going for a run and you can't do that or you're used to going to work and you can't do that, um, all the way to kind of figuring out what exercise needs during cancer and into survivorship and cooking ideas and um, lots of personal stories from caregivers and survivors of kind of all ages, all diagnoses. Um, and yeah, just kind of finding a space to figure out the new level of self-care that you need, whether you identify with their needing to be a new normal or not, um, just figuring out what this kind of new life with cancer and afterwards means. And so, you know, we're for the young adults, by the young adults, and it's young adult survivors and caregivers who do all the writing, and um, we're just hoping to kind of bring that little ounce of kind of lifestyle maintenance, awareness, and support to every young adult that we can who's going through all of this. Well, I congratulate you on, we always say get busy living, but you are clearly getting busy living, uh, and a testament to all we stand for, and, and I can't, I'm, I'm proud. I, I hate to sound paternal or avuncular, but I'm really just proud <laughs> of everything you are and what you've chosen to do with your life, uh, having been, you know, thrown some shit and many times, you you know, you've, you've been through the ringer. Life's not a contest, but you, you've, it's what you do with it and you, you're doing amazing things with it. So Mallory, uh, Casperson, 28 year, uh, are you 28 now? How old are you now? I'm 28. My birthday's next week, though. Next week I'll be 29. Soon to be 29 year old. Happy birthday in advance. Uh, young adult survivor, Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, founder and CEO of Lacuna Loft, online at lacunaloft.com. Mallory, thank you so much, and good luck moving to San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, Kenny, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods. And we certainly don't want you missing out on them. Uh, a couple of meetups happening. Uh, San Diego, Denver, and San Francisco. And if you'd like to host your own meetup, visit stupidcancer.org meetup. Cancer's lonely. We've got a cure for that. We're talking about Instapeer, our mobile app, bringing instant anonymous peer support to anyone affected by cancer, now available for iOS, iPhone, iPad, and uh, iPod Touch, as well as most Android devices in the uh, Apple Store and the Google Play Store, instapeer.org. We launched an internet aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post 
on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer's expensive. We're proud to announce cancermademebroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick, and your community wants to help you. Visit cancermaybebroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. It's always a good time to stock up on stupid cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime. Check out our skateboard, flip the cancer bird, and all the new designs coming this summer. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. And now, Michelle J. Rosenberg, an educational consultant who has helped countless young adults with cancer identify appropriate on-campus resources and develop realistic plans for their unique circumstances. She leads college and cancer workshops and is the assistant dean of undergraduate programs of the Sawyer Business School at Suffolk University in Boston. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Michelle Rosenthal. Michelle. Hello there. Hello. So this topic holds something very near and dear to me, very special to me, because I was diagnosed with cancer in college. Granted, it was 1995, and life was very different back then. And I can, in theory, forgive the 90s for sucking in general. But (laughs) to me, this, and correct me if I'm wrong, this may start with campus medical services to begin with. Is that accurate? So what may start with campus medical services? uh, Where a young adult may go or yeah because i went there for six straight months with symptoms and they kept giving me a diagnosis of everything but what i actually had which was brain cancer so yeah i remember you talking about that at cancer con let me say it's great to be part of the show i attended my first cancer con conference in uh, denver this april and i talk about it all the time so again thanks for thanks for having me um you know, it's it's interesting because I, I, I most of the young adults that I deal with have been diagnosed um, already, so I kind of begin with them about how to and help them navigate the process of um, really dealing, working with their cancer while in college or university. Um, so I remember you talking at CancerCon about your own experience and the terrible ordeal of all oh, mis misdiagnosis. So I trust that that continues to be true uh, for young adults that begin there. Um, my interaction, though, may basically starts kind of after the point of right. diagnosis. No, I, I get that. There's there's that, yeah. the, what we said, the, I said the oh shit window, of course, and then the what next seems to right. be the, the, oh my God, I'm not 80, you know, I'm not six, I'm right. not, you know, established in a career or trying to just get by. College is a whole different animal to begin with. Right, right. I mean, but, you know, I'm thinking about one young man that I worked with recently who was getting ready for an athletic event. His whole family was coming up. He wasn't feeling quite well, Um, did actually go to the health center, and the health center did, you know, share with him that it might be more than they could um, diagnose. And so he got... He got somewhat accurate information, though, you know, so parents came for this athletic event, and then he ended up never going back to that institution because he needed uh, the treatment that he needed, so he ended up transferring and going going elsewhere. But um, certainly young adults starting college are looking forward to many other things, and cancer diagnosis is certainly not one of them, not one of them. 
Right. So yeah. how did you get into this to begin with? What I mean, yeah. this is a very noble career path. And yeah. uh, what specifically inspired you to, to take this track? Yeah, thank you. You know, I feel quite privileged. Um, I went to college and never left. I love higher ed. College was a very formative experience for me personally. Um, and just that the age, 18 years old, was significant. Um, people would say they might not necessarily want to go back, but it was such a time of change for me. I decided early in my career that that was the that was the age that I wanted to work with, and I originally thought it would be counseling psych and then um, made a quick change to higher ed administration when I was in graduate school. Um, you know, and when I think about the young adults that I've been, again, privileged to work with through the years, either at Mount Holyoke College or Ithaca College or the University of Delaware, uh, Babson, um, but Brandeis was really um, my time as the associate dean um, of undergraduate academic affairs at Brandeis was really a turning point for me because that's when I met um, Sam Eisenstein, now Sam Eisenstein Watson. Um, Sam was one of my advisees, um, and she was actually diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma um, in her senior year and then diagnosed um, with a secondary cancer, myotoplastic syndrome, um, through her, the later part of college. And Sam is just um, an incredibly bright light. Like she'd come into my office, and it might be with a cane, it might be balding, um, it might be after treatment in New York, and she always got back to Brandeis, and all she wanted to do was, was graduate. Um, and I worked closely with Sam as her academic dean at that time and worked with many colleagues to make sure that Sam got what she wanted and deserved through her hard work, which was to graduate from college. But through that time, and, you know, the interesting part, too, when I think about Sam and so many young adults that I've been privileged to work with through the years is, is that, you know, she would come into my office with, you know, a, a significant story and maybe right before or right after her, someone might have come in with a hangnail or something fairly <laughs> minor looking for an exception, and, you know, there would be Sam. Um, and you know, through, through her treatment um, and through the support that she received at Brandeis, in addition to her focus on graduating, she was also, she had this early vision for creating the SAM Fund, Surviving and Moving Forward. And I remember talking with her about what the name might be, you know, and, and what this organization might do. Um, but she was clear that she wanted to create an organization whose mission was to aid the financial recovery from cancer for young adults. And Sam has gone on to do that in spades. Um, and privileged to know her then and privileged to have a continual relationship with her. So that was the beginning. That was really the inspiration. And um, from that, I uh, started to ride the Pan Math Challenge, which I continue to do year six coming up, uh, ride from Wellesley to Bourne to raise uh, needed research and funds. Um, and then in a connection with the Dana-Farber Young Adult Program, um, where I serve as a volunteer and provide college and cancer um, uh, workshops um, for young adults with their fa and their family. Michelle, if I so, could hop in for a second, I, I'm not yeah. sure if Sam had shared this with shared oh. this with you, but she was one of the very first uh, young adults. I, I talked to a cancer kind of about my story. It took me seven years to meet another yeah. person that was not 80 with brain cancer or any cancer for that matter. And Sam was one of the very first handful of people I had met mm -hmm. in about 2003, four, five ish, just as she mm -hmm. was you know, getting her stuff together. And I was one of her original uh, committee review members. Ah, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that. she and I go back a little before Andy, um, uh, or Adam, I forget her husband's name, Adam, before the Adam, baby, Adam. before her MBA, before everything, um, 
she even met my one of the people that met my wife. That's how far back we go. Um, and uh, I have a profound respect for all that she has done. To I mean, and you yeah. know, I mean, and you know, I met her early. I mean, she, she again, she's just such a bright light and such an inspiration. And that's always been true. She went on and certainly got her uh, uh, bachelor's from Brandeis, went on and got a master's too, and then just you know does this incredible work. So that's a wonderful connection. Um, you know, and Sam, I think that. You know, she's been a model as I, as again, I, I work with young adults and I think about um, kind of what we did to help her navigate her academic experience. Um, I also worked with her to navigate her social and co-curricular experience. So singing a cappella was important to Sam and, you know, that was, that was her choice and her involvement and way to stay connected and of the things I, I do in my work again with, with other young adults is, you know, everyone is, has their own journey and their own experience with their diagnosis. And for some, it's doing everything they can to just stay on the path, right? And and they're really well enough and their treatment is manageable enough that they don't need to do something like take a reduced course load or they don't need to do something like time off. Um, but some, um, you know, some do. Um, but in any case, some of the work I do is just is trying to help to maintain a connection and so because as as you talk about and as such as so much is talked about in the the research and and certainly uh through the dana farber program and and countercon and um, other wonderful initiatives it, it points to the loneliness and isolation and as you referred to you know you were an 80 um and you weren't a small child right you were um in a formative time in your life and the last thing you wanted to do was feel as isolated and as lonely so i have to say apps like instapeer and you know the work that Johnny Inman does for Inman Angels, um, and I'd like to think some of the work that I do just to help um, young adults at, in that prime college space um, stay connected and help them figure out like what a network means and who their friends still are, where so many have dropped off for a whole host and variety of reasons. So let's talk about the yeah. the not so subtle nuances of navigating anything health related in college to begin with in 2015, when yeah. there is nothing but noise everywhere you go, right. and you could and Doctor Google is probably your worst enemy, uh, but you you may have insight into the attitudes and behaviors of millennials or average. I think they're like Gen Zers now that are like just going to college now at 17 years old. What is the biggest challenge they face as far as understanding that there even is navigation available to them in the yeah. college campuses? Yeah, I mean, I think what's so interesting, and as I think about um, some of the experiences that I've had um, with the Young Adult Program at Dana-Farber, attending uh, the Young Adult Conference there, um, as was true um, at CancerCon, it strikes me when I'm with so many young adults, the attitude pardon me, which is just kind of fuck you, I have this and I really need to move on with my life. Um, what strikes me is that so many young adults, again, with whom I'm privileged to work, um, have really ne- are very high achieving, have never really asked for help before, and aren't quite sure how to do it, right? And so, you know, this has happened, but there's this strong attitude and this strong resilience to really to move forward. Um, but, you know, many do need to, to ask for help and to try to secure a network that is going to really work for them. Um, I, I would say, in addition to kind of challenges of healthcare and, 
you know, kind of finding the best place and the best physicians, et cetera, you know, college campuses are, because of budget cuts, you know, often short-staffed, um, don't always have all of the resources that we'd like to believe that we have, and it, it's tough. And, you know, um, college students come to campuses with a whole host of issues and problems. Um, so a lot of the work that I do is helping a young adult to really create a network, um, and I encourage them to be very choosy about who might be part of that network. So um, in most cases, um, it would be the director of health services. Um, it should also be the director of disability services and support. It may be the dean of students. Um, it may be um, the student's academic dean or member of the faculty. Um, I would say you know, disability services and health services are key. A member of the dean of students' office, probably a very important person um, or persons. And then after that, um, and also possibly someone from the counseling center, just so there's another person to talk with confidentially. Um, but the network, I think, should be relatively small and really folks that the student will feel will be champions for them, right? That this, I think it's important for young adults and our millennial generation knows how to advocate, um, but the additional support of resources on campus are really key and critical. Um, and, you know, from campus to campus, the titles change, right? Um, but the supports are generally there, and some of the work is helping young adults find who those supports are and what their titles are. Right. Um, and, and affirming that it's really okay to ask, um, because again, in my experience, so many haven't, right? They just, they haven't, you know, things have been going well, they just started, they're excited, um, they're halfway through, they're, you know, thinking about career, and then all of a sudden there's a lump, or all of a sudden something is irregular, and the whole world changes. Um, and there's a pause, and mom and dad or family members or significant others don't quite know what to do either. Um, so some of it is helping to normalize this, and the normalizing is just about knowing that there are other students that have significant and critical issues, and the supports and resources are there to be helpful. So let me ask you then, from a professional perspective, what are some of the challenges you face if you were to approach a new university and say, hey, this is what I do when I matter, hire me or consult with me? Me? So m myself in my role? Yeah, like you're, you're it's, I, I would like to know, I would like to believe yeah. there are a hundred of you around the country talking to every single university, but that's probably not the case. You have no, to sort of really pound the pavement. I think it's just me. <laughs> so, <laughs> honestly, yeah, no, I, you know, I really, this is my, I, again, I do feel so fortunate when I think about where I've been privileged to work in various roles that I've been, that I've held in the, including my current role at Suffolk University. Um, so it really, I just, and because I've held positions both within student affairs, I've served as a director of residence life and academic affairs where I uh, continue to serve um, in the academic setting um, currently within the, the business school at Suffolk. Um, you know, I just, I know a lot about just the ins and outs and offices and the people and what they're called and who they're called. But, um, you know, I have to say that it was wonderful to, for example, present at CancerCon, the navigating uh, college and cancer session that, that I was asked to do. But <laughs> Um, I don't believe one had happened before, and um, it's pretty much just me, it seems, um, at this point, although there are lots of good folks out there that know and have all the same information that I do. And, and that's kind of sad at the same time. It's so, so critically necessary. <laughs> 
Well, you know, yeah. I'm just again. I'm the the happy for me is that <laughs> that I'm here to be able to do it. You know, and then, you know, when I think about the the contact that I have, sometimes it's one or two times, and really just you know affirming and getting the young adult, you know, kind of on the right track. Um, sometimes it's more because things don't always work out as planned. I, you know, it's interesting. I work with too many young adults who um, needed to take time off because of their diagnosis, and then the work is just helping them figure out how, the point of reentry, which always seems more complicated from the outside. It shouldn't be, um, and it really isn't, um, but, you know, it often feels that way. Um, I have um, talked with many young adults who, again, are – struggling with um, what to write in their admissions essay, for example, right? So, you know, I started college many years ago, they might say, needed to take time off because of my diagnosis, I need to reapply, I need to write some kind of statement, do I write about my cancer, or do I not write about my cancer? Right, the whole um, gap in your service history, so to speak. Well, I'm sorry? The gap in your service history. Right, yeah, exactly. Actually, if you'd like, I um, what I did a couple of years ago um, is I reached out to my colleagues um, at various uh, colleges and university, and I talked with them a little bit about my work, and I shared with them two questions that young adults uh, typically, uh, two questions or things that young adults with cancer typically say. Um, one is, I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me, but I have learned so much about myself through this diagnosis, and I want to tell my story. Um, so that's a little bit about, you know, how do I write this or what do I say um, if I'm on an interview, for example, with an admissions officer. Um, or I don't want anyone to misunderstand, but I may need some um, on-campus support and how do I ask for that. And that second question speaks to, again, the young adults who just never asked before, right, and is just figuring out what right. and how much to say. Um, I, I will, if, you, if you'd like, I can share with you um, – a response from one of my um, dean of admissions colleagues that I don't I like a lot, and um, I've shared with young adults. Um, I shared with CancerCon at another conference that I spoke, and um, they responded well. So if I have a moment, oh I can please share. do yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, my advice is to be genuine and to include as much as the student is comfortable sharing. Admissions essays can tell us a lot about an applicant and can often point to life challenges that have proven the applicant can overcome incredible odds. For me, as an admissions director, talking about dealing with an illness and lessons learned, lessons learned would tell me that the applicant will face challenges as a student head on. I would emphasize that the applicant explain what dealing with an illness has taught him or her and how they might use those lessons on campus for themselves and perhaps to help others. I would also caution them that the essay, in my experience, is never the deciding factor. It is only one piece of the admissions process and does not hold, does not hold anywhere as much weight as does academics and SAT scores. I read very compelling essays from students who have encountered illness and some incredible difficult life circumstances, but sometimes need to deny them if they are not academically prepared to succeed. I would want such students to know that it is not because of their illness or challenge and to not feel as though they are not judged on that, but that many factors determine admissions, and each college has a, has a different approach. Um, well another, 
Um, sure, just one more. Um, this is a great question, and from my perspective, I think the admissions essay provides an exceptional opportunity for students to be able to talk about perspectives, obstacles, determination, challenges, resolve, and much more. I always tell our applicants that the personal statement is a way for us to learn about more about the unique aspects of their lives. They should not feel that telling their story would be viewed negatively in the college process. How they frame the statement is important. It's a significant part of their life's journey to this point. I'm sure none of them would want to define themselves or all future opportunities by their cancer, but we'd all be foolish to think that having cancer won't be with them forever. Telling their story through their lessons learned, obstacles overcome, or even continued challenges on an ongoing basis will help us to better know them as individuals, which I've always argued is the entire point of a college essay. Wow. So those perspectives, right, are just helpful and um, young adults, when just being able to hear that objectively, will say, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And it's just it really kind of helps them to balance the fear, you know, that they have to, again, tell their story and, um, and thoughts about how much. So it's a piece of their identity, but not necessarily their full identity in terms of how they're viewed by, again, in this case, an admissions officer. So we have about three to five oh, minutes sorry. left. No, that's fine. I, we, we can talk probably all night and do seven or eight shows on this. And, and there was only positive feedback from your, your session in Denver. So you, you clearly know what you're talking about. And this is, Thank you, this is a very necessary issue. This, this whole concept of navigation has been challenging because there is no code to bill against it. Insurance doesn't consider even the, the if there are professional like nurse navigators or clinical care coordinators, oftentimes insurance won't, you know, fund this or this is a barrier to take advantage of a, what I would consider a civil liberty uh, to, to know what is out there curated for you. How are you able to get through or do, does it even matter about that in terms of you being effective in getting your work done? specifically with young adults? You, yeah, I mean, in, yeah. I, I guess in general, navigation is is a great idea. I don't yeah. know if it's been truly, uh, you know, the the healthcare system hasn't really wrapped their arms around it yet. Right. Well, I, I, you know, I think that working with an Office of Disability Services is key, right? So a student is ill and needs accommodation and is entitled to those accommodations. So um, I think in terms of resources that a student might need, so, you know, Again, depending on the, their treatment, they might need a single room, right, um, because of sleep patterns or because they might be up at various points in, in the evening or might need transportation because there are mobility issues or might need privacy for testing because there are distraction issues or memory issues because of um, chemo. Um, so I think kind of, again, just kind of centering it to campus, once a student brings forward all the requisite documentation that they need, generally I would say disability services and, and health services are very, very supportive about what students need for accommodations. And again, students with illness are entitled to those accommodations based on um, what would be determined a disability um, at that point in their lives. Understood. What have you found to be... I guess, I, I mean, you clearly have success stories and great testimonials. Do you have one particular story that just jumps right out at you, how you were able to really meet a, a, a college student who was in need of this help and they found something because of you and their life was magnanimously transformed? Um, I'm thinking about a student who was diagnosed uh, with cancer at um, an institution that they, uh, Wallace actually in their um, 
one of their last years, their senior year um, on campus, and uh, started their treatment, uh, decided that um, even though they were doing well, um, could not um, could not go back to that home institution, and I was able to work with them and some of my colleagues to um, uh, get them support to audit classes at another institution um, where they ultimately applied um, to to finish their coursework. Um, so I think for me, the best situations are when I'm able to develop trust and develop a relationship with a student um, and then really pull in my resources to make it happen. Right. Um, and again, they're just great people in higher ed that do this work because they love working with students and really want to do everything that they can to be helpful. It might not always feel that way right. um, because in higher ed, too, everyone's overburdened and stressed and, and all the rest, but they're good people. Um, so I think where I've been able to combine, again, my love and my passion for working with students and uh, reaching out to colleagues who um, have that same love and passion and will do anything they can, you know, within constraints and parameters, um, to go out of the box and make something happen for a student in need. Um, I think those are probably the situations I feel. Um, and I have a, a few, at least a few of those stories that I really feel quite good about where collaboration can really work. No, and I agree. And you've you heard our manifesto repeated many times that we have the right to survive with dignity and quality and be treated age appropriately. And this certainly falls within that call to action, navigating, knowing what, knowing you're not alone, knowing what resources are tailored for you. Final question. How do you decide uh, what resources you can curate? Like what, be, what, what are your criteria for, you know, what specifically pops into mind? You mentioned the SAM fund and Immigrant Angels and obviously us. Uh, where, where do you get the literacy sort of um, uh, filter yeah, that's a, it's really information that uh, through conference attendance, right? So that's where I learned about Instapeer, um, and now um, emails that I'm getting that I'm getting after with updates. Um, so really, just you know, trying to be on the pulse. Um, I receive information through the Young Adult Program um, at Dana Farber, and just through connections with the Blum Family Resource Center is another just great resource for. Um, um, for those that are, are getting treatment there. Um, so I just, you know, trying to trying to just stay on the pulse um, of what is what information is going to young adults so I can I can make sure that that's kind of in my toolbox too when I'm meeting with a student who, again, it's a new diagnosis. They have no idea that these resources exist. So, you know, the more that comes to me, the better. And I think I'm very resourceful and good at good at remembering a this or that, and I can help make connections. We've been speaking with Boston-based edu educational consultant Michelle Rosenthal, the assistant dean of undergraduate programs at the Sawyer Business School of Suffolk University in Boston, a uh, CancerCon speaker. I guess that goes on LinkedIn, I suppose. Congratulations on everything you're doing for our movement and for joining us on the show tonight. Thank you so much, Matt. All right, Michelle Rosenthal, everyone. Okay, and uh, with that, it is now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 353rd episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. 
We hope it's as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our guests, Mallory Kasperson of Lacuna Loft, Michelle Rosenthal, talking about college and cancer. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss a beat by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks, it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of myself and our team here, Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, Sean Shapiro, and Noel Wimmer, thank you for listening, and we'll see you back on the next broadcast of The Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye, folks. Survivors over 65